How many of you brought your Bible this morning? Will you hold up the Word of God all over the building this morning? I want to ask you to join me, if you will, this morning over on page number 1262, if you have an old Schofield Bible, 1262, or the book of Colossians chapter number 1. If you don't have an old Schofield Bible, if you'll just find the book of Matthew and go over, I don't know, seven, eight, nine books, you'll run into the book of Colossians. And we're in chapter 1 this morning. And I'm going to ask you, if you will, to leave your Bibles open and just follow me along. In just a minute, I'll read some, uh, some verses, and uh, then I'll bring a message from the text here this morning. Don't forget our service again this afternoon at 5.30. We'd invite you to come back. If you're visiting with us, we'd love for you to come back and be with us in the service tonight. And then, of course, we always look for our members and thank you for being faithful, loving your church, and hope you'll pray for the service this evening at 5.30. All right, the book of Colossians, chapter number one. If you're there, would you say amen? All right, I want you to look this way, if you will. You know, there are some things that it's just kind of hard to wrap your mind around, even though they're true. Some things that are true, but very, very hard to believe. For instance, did you know that honey never spoils? Yeah, if you've got a jar of honey that's sitting in your cabinet, maybe it's 25, 30 years old, maybe you're one of those that don't clean out much, and you've got a jar of honey sitting around, it's real old, can I tell you something? You'd go home today and eat it, wouldn't make you sick, because it is a proven fact that honey never spoils. Here's an interesting fact that's true. Did you know that, the, that, that a full head of human hair is strong enough to support 12 tons of weight? In other words, if you've got a full head of hair and you could somehow take all that hair, twist it together, make a rope out of it, that, that hair would support up to 12 tons of weight. Now, I personally think I'm down to about a half a ton now, and some of you are a lot lower than that, so don't laugh. But, uh, you know, 12 tons, can you imagine that? Your hair is that strong. Here's another fact. Boy, this is hard to believe, but it's true. Did you know that dead people still get goosebumps? That's right. Dead people. By the way, I know that one's true because when I preach every Sunday morning, I see it happen right here at Woodland Baptist Church. That's hard to believe, but it's true. Dead people still get goosebumps. Then what about this one? Neil Armstrong, the first man to ever walk on the moon. When he came back, splashed down in the Pacific Ocean in Apollo, was it 11, whatever it was, when he splashed down in the ocean, they made that old boy go through customs on his way back to the United States from Honolulu, Hawaii, because he had been to the moon. When he come back, he had to go through customs. Now, I'll tell you, I think I might have just let him pass on through. But those things are hard to believe, and yet they're true. Well, that's certainly true when it comes to the case and the subject of Christmas. You know, people normally don't struggle with the when and the where of Christmas nearly as much as they struggle with the who and the why of Christmas. Well, as we sit here in this auditorium this morning, we are exactly 19 days away from Christmas, or roughly about 332 hours. It is going to be Christmas, or to be more precise, we're about 19,920 minutes away from Christmas. How many of you got your shopping done? Yeah, Christmas is just 
around the corner. One of the things that I'm aware of is that every year when the calendar flips over to December is people normally start coming to church and they expect an onslaught of annual Christmas sermons. Well, I'm going to begin this year in Colossians chapter number 1 and we're going to look a little bit at the Christmas story this morning from Colossians chapter 1. But this story is not so much about the when of Christmas or the where of Christmas. And it's really not a whole lot about the what of Christmas, but it really deals with the who and the why of Christmas. And let me just say this. I appreciate the when of Christmas. The Bible said in Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of times was come, God sent forth his son. I appreciate it. Jesus was born right on time. I appreciate the where of Christmas, Bethlehem in the land of Judea. But if I'm ever going to really appreciate Christmas itself, I've got to understand really the who of Christmas, who it was that was born on that Christmas morning. I read the story uh, this week about this little five-year-old kindergarten class and her teacher had as an assignment to her class had given them the assignment of drawing a picture of their favorite person. And, you know, they all went to work drawing their pictures. And one by one, the teacher would walk by the desk and she would say, and who are you drawing a picture of? And, you know, they'd say mama or they'd say daddy or grandma or grandpa. But she went by this one little boy's desk. His name was Larry. She said, Larry, who are you drawing a picture of? He said, ma'am, I am drawing a picture of God. And she said to him, now, Larry, nobody knows who God looks like. He said, teacher, they will when I get through. Well, can I tell you this morning, as we look at this text that I'm about to read to you this morning, what Paul is going to do for us this morning is draw us a picture of the babe of Bethlehem. He's going to draw us a picture. And by the way, even though we may not know exactly what Jesus may have looked like on the outside from what Paul said right here, we know exactly who he was on the inside. So let me stop now. Let's read Colossians chapter 1. I want to begin reading with verse 15. Permit me, if you will, to read down to verse number 21. Here is what the Bible says, verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him, by Jesus, by the babe in Bethlehem, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were cr created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Jesus, might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he, Jesus, the babe of Bethlehem, yet now hath he reconciled. 
Now, I told you a moment ago, Paul is giving us a picture of exactly who it was that was born on that first Christmas morning. But again, it's not a picture from the outside. We can't say that Jesus had this color hair, this color eyes. We can't say he was 22 inches long and he weighed 7 pounds and 6 We can't say any of that. We don't know what anything, uh, anything about how he looked on the outside. But boy, I'll tell you what, bless your heart, we know exactly who he was on the inside. And what I'd like to do this morning is get you to join me in this text. I want to point out three things about who the babe of Bethlehem really was when he was born on Christmas morning. First of all, I want you to look at verse 16. And let's talk a little bit about this. That babe laying in that manger born that morning was, number one, the ruler of over creation. The ruler over the creation. Now you can't miss that. In verse 16, Paul says this, for by him, by Jesus, were all things created. Boy, that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? You know, if we didn't even have a Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. If we didn't have that and all we had was a Colossians 1-16, the one thing we could know is this, that little baby born in that Bethlehem was the one who had created everything that there is. He goes on to say this in verse 16, He created all things, things that are in heaven and things that are in earth, things that are visible and things that are invisible were created by Him. At the latter part of verse 16, the Bible said all things, visible, invisible, heaven and earth, all things were created by him and for him. And verse 17 kind of just wraps it up by simply saying this, by him all things consist. That little baby born in that manger on that Christmas morning was in reality the one who had created everything that there was and everything that there is. Now really what this does to me is it kind of indicates to me that that baby that was born in Bethlehem didn't begin at Bethlehem, but he existed long before Bethlehem. You see, when Jesus came to Bethlehem, he began his earthly life. But you and I know that Jesus was alive long before he ever began in Bethlehem. Long before he ever arrived in that manger in Bethlehem, he existed in eternity with God the Father. In other words, let me say it like this. Jesus no more began at Bethlehem than he ended at Calvary. Amen. He always has been, he is right now, and he always will be. Maybe I could say it like this. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was not that a new person had come into the world. It was that God had entered into the humanity through the womb of a virgin. You see, Jesus existed long before uh, with his father, long before he ever came to the womb of his mother. In fact, he was there on creation morning and he, the Lord Jesus, the baby that was born in Bethlehem, actually spoke everything that there is into existence. You see, he's the ruler over the creation. Now, if if you're sitting here this morning, you say, Preacher, I really, really have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. Well, let me tell you this. I don't. I, I think it takes a lot more faith to believe in something called evolution than it does to believe in the fact that God created everything that there is. Can I have an amen? Can I tell you something? When I look at that piano sitting over there, when I see that, the one thing that I'm just, uh, I just totally know right up front is that just didn't happen. Somebody, there's a master builder behind that, the construction of that piano over there. 
You see, I don't believe that thousands of years ago that there were some screws and some metal and some wood and some keys and some strings laying over here in a field over here off Highway 66. And year by year, those things begin to inch themselves toward each other until finally one day they kind of inch toward themselves to the point that they all just join together and voila, we have a baby grand piano. Do you believe that happened? Well, ladies and gentlemen, when I consider the vastness of this earth and the complexity of it, the one thing that I come to grips with is the fact there is a master creator. There is an intelligent designer behind the design of this earth. And Paul said, let me tell you, clear it all up. It was that baby that was born in Bethlehem. He is the ruler over the creation. In fact, let me tell you this. When Jesus was born, he was the only baby that had ever been born that can actually point to the sun, the moon, the stars, and the galaxies and say, I created every one of them. He can point to every ocean. He can point to every lake, every river, every stream, and say, I created every one of them. He can point to every mountain, every hill, every valley, and say, I was there when they were created. He can point to every tree, every flower, every blade of grass, and say, I created them. And he could point to every human being, the brown, the black, the white, the red, the yellow, and he could say, I created every one of them. Yes, sir. He is the creator. He is the ruler over the creation. That little baby was. Amen and amen. In fact, can I say it like this? Do you know the reason why this world was created? And do you know the reason why you and I were created. We were created for Him. God just didn't want sitting up in heaven one day and said, you know something, I think I'm going to make me a world. I'm bored with the way things are going. I'm bored with all these angels up here pouring their worship and their praise upon me. I think I'm going to go down there and create me a world. No, sir, not on your life. You know something? God created this world and God created you and God created me for him, for himself. In fact, let me, let me clarify Let me clarify that. Over in the book of Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 11, we read these words right here. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and praise. The Bible said, for thou hast created, there it is again, thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were and are created. Can I stop and tell you, you know why God created this world? For his pleasure. And do you know why God created you? And do you know why God created me? So that I might bring, bring pleasure to his heart. Can I tell you something? You may have been out here laying around in some old hell hole last night. You may have been boozing it up, shooting it up, whatever you may have been doing last night. I want to tell you this. You weren't created for that garbage. You weren't created for that mess. You were created by God, for God, to please, to bring pleasure and joy to the heart of Almighty God. Amen. He is the ruler over the creation. He's the ruler over you. He is the ruler over me. He's the ruler. You say, Donald Trump is the president. You know, no, sir, friend, he might be the president, but God's the ruler. Amen. He is the ruler over the creation. He's the one, by the way, who's holding it all together.
If you'll look up there in verse number 17, the Bible said this, and by him all things consist. By him all things are being held together. You know, I know sometimes we get overwhelmed with life and we become burdened down and we say something like this, I'm having a hard time of holding it together. Well, can I tell you, can you imagine what a time Jesus is having trying to hold all this stuff together. I mean, friend, the, the suns and the moons and the stars and the galaxies and everything that's happening in your life and my life, but thank God we've got a creator who's holding it all together. Amen. It's not dependent upon me. It's not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon some nation, not some scientist. It is depending upon him, and thank God he's holding it all together. We used to sing that song when I was growing up, growing up. He's got the whole world in his hands. Amen. He's not only got the whole world in his hands, but he's got you and me, brother, in his hands as well. And he is holding it all together. So I'll tell you, that babe in Bethlehem, I'll tell you exactly who he was. He was the ruler over the creation. But now he leaves that and he goes a step further. And he says, now let me tell you another thing about that babe in Bethlehem. Not only was he the ruler over the creation, but he goes on to say in verse 18, he is the leader, he is the leader of the church. Look at verse 18. And he is that little baby in Bethlehem, that, that the Lord Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now we learn it, we, we take it a step further. We know that that little baby was not just the one who created everything that there is. We know that little baby is also the leader of the church. You know, sometimes in this walk of life, you know, down here on this earth, so, uh, they'll say so-and-so is the leader of the church. For instance, the Catholics say the Pope is the leader of of the church. But I'll tell you something, I don't care what kind of title you may stamp on somebody, Jesus Christ is the leader of the church. He is the head of the church. And we're referred to, those of us that are saved, we're referred to as the body of Christ. The body of, of Christ. The body is, is the church. Everybody knows the body gets its instructions from its head. Am I right? Sometimes, and we have folks in our church that this happens to tragically and regrettably. But we have folks in our church who sometimes they have strokes. And because of the strokes that they have, they'll lose the use of a faculty, an arm, perhaps a foot, maybe a whole side of their body. Now let me tell you something. That arm just didn't on its own go bad. That foot on its own just didn't go bad. Something happened in the head. A little, a little clot passed through a, an artery somewhere up there and because of that, it, it debilitated. It made that arm or that foot or that leg become useless to that individual. And hopefully through the process of time and much therapy, they can gain that use back. But ladies and gentlemen, what I'm trying to say is this. The head controls the body. The body doesn't control the head. He tells us what to do. We don't tell him what to do. And can I say this reverently? And I think you'll understand. I don't mean this irreverently whatsoever. But can I say it like this? Jesus is the brains of the church. He is the head of the church. He rules the church. You see, the church is not a monarchy that is, that is ruled by the pastor. It is not an oligarchy that is ruled by the deacon. It is not a democracy 
that is ruled by the people. The church is a Christocracy. It is ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. Hey, sometimes they'll say, oh, we're going over Woodland. That's Brother Tim's church. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, it ain't Brother Tim's church. It never has been Brother Tim's church. It never will be Brother Tim's church. It's Jesus' church. He, he's the one who died for the church. And then we read this in verse 18. Not only is he the head of the church, but he is the firstborn of the church. Now, what does that mean? Well, that simply means this. When Jesus Christ... When he was born in Bethlehem, he was born to die. Miss Lisa just sang that for, about that for us just a moment ago. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. He is the firstborn of the dead. He's the first one that was ever raised from the dead. Now you say, preacher, hold on just a minute now. Now you done stepped over the line because there are three people in the Old Testament that was raised from the dead. There was three people in the New Testament that was raised from the dead long before Jesus ever died. How can you say he was the firstborn, the first one ever raised from the dead? Well, let me say it like this. He was the first one that was ever raised from the dead that didn't have to die again. Everybody in our Bible that we read about that was resurrected from the dead had to die once again. They had to go through the pains of death once again. But Jesus, when he died on Calvary and he went to the grave and 72 hours later when he walked out of the blackness of that tomb, he's alive and he'll never have to die again. They'll never crucify him again. He's alive and alive forevermore. And because he's alive, watch this now, church ought to be alive. Can I have an amen? Because our head is alive, the church. Our head is vivacious. Our head is full of vitality. Our head is very energetic. And ladies and gentlemen, because he is alive, church ought to be alive. It's really a contradiction in terms to say a church is dead. A dead church. How can a church be dead if their head is alive? He is alive and alive forevermore. I heard about this one preacher. He'd taken this church, and one of his friends said, well, how's it going? He said, man, it's going great. This church is dying slower than any church I've ever pastored before. I don't want a dead church. Do you? I do not want to come to church and meet with a bunch of dead people who are trying to worship a dead God. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, our head is alive. And because he's alive, the singing ought to be alive. And because he's alive, the preaching ought to be alive. And because he's alive, the praying ought to be alive. And the testifying ought to be alive. And the witnessing ought to be alive. And the fellowship ought to be alive because our head is alive. Church ought to be alive. Amen. God have mercy on an old dead church somewhere. God have mercy on a bunch of people who gather together Sunday after Sunday, get up, walk out the same way they came in. Brother, I want something alive. I want something where I can feel something. I want something where I can hear something. I want to be a part of something where I can get something. This world is not at all interested in a dead church with a bunch of dead people. Give me something that's real, friend, and something that's alive. Let me tell you what happens to a church that's dead. It gets dis disconnected from its head. Amen. They distance themselves from the head because when the head is alive, the body's going to be alive. Amen and amen. Then he goes on to say this in verse 18 that in all things, that babe in Bethlehem, 
that in all things he might have, say it with me, not prominence, preeminence. If we ever get to the place that all we want to do around here is just give Jesus a little prominent place in our church, friend, God help us, we're going to be a dead church. But buddy, if we can somehow come in here with the attitude, it's all about him. And every song that's sung is about him. And every prayer that is prayed is to him. And every testimony that is given is an adoration and praise to him. And when the preacher gets up behind the pulpit and he begins to preach about him and people step back in the spotlight and let him have all the glory and all the praise and all the honor, friend, I want to tell you, that's the kind of church that's alive. Yes, sir. Can I tell you something? It's not the pastor, no, sir, nor the people that make the church. It's not the music. It's not the money. It's Jesus. Boy, I want him to get the glory. I want him to get the praise. I appreciate when people come around, slap me on the back, can't shake hands no more. Come around and say, boy, preacher, I appreciate that. Boy, preacher, I'll tell you, that helped me. Can I tell you something? I appreciate all that. Thank you so much. But I'll tell you, behind it all, there is a God in heaven. There is a Savior on the cross who makes it all possible. And instead of saying this or that, we ought to just look up to heaven and say, God, thank you. Without you, we're nothing and can do nothing. Oh, yeah, that little baby born in that, that little baby born in Bethlehem was the ruler over the creation. He is the leader of the church. But then he takes it a step further. Join me now in verse number 20 and verse number 21. And he says, that little baby that was born in Bethlehem, yeah, he's the Savior for the Christian. Look at verse number 20. The Bible said, and after having said all that. Now, I'm telling you, it would have been great just to know, hey, he's, he created everything, and he's in control and charge at church. That would have been great. But Paul perhaps saves the best for last because we had a problem. Look at verse 20, and having made peace, through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. And you, verse 21, and you. Boy, we had a problem, did we not? We had a big problem. Why did Jesus have to come anyway? Why did he come into this world? Why did he invade this world? Why did he come into this world? Why was he born in a manger? He was born for you and for me. He was born with a purpose in view. And the verse number 21 says this, Sometimes ye that sometimes were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he. That's the story of Christmas. I mean, the best word that sums us up, alienated. What does that mean? What is an alien? Well, an alien is a foreigner. An alien is somebody that's unknown. Uh, and, and can I tell you what we were before Calvary? We were, we were foreigners to God. We were away. We were at a distance from God. Best word that describes us in verse 21 is the word alienation. That's what we were. We were alienated from God, but the best word that describes what Jesus came to do is the word reconciliation. Amen. Jesus came down to this earth and went up to Calvary and shed his blood in order that you and I, who were alienated away from God, at a distance from God because of our sin, might be brought near close unto God, that the relationship might be 
restored. Amen. You see, when two people are separated because of the differences between them, boy, were we separated from God. Everything that He was and is, we're not. And because of that, there was a distance. There was a disconnect. There was a separation there. And what we needed was for somebody who could bring us back together. Enter the Lord Jesus. God and man. Not 50% man and 50% God, but 100% man and 100% God. And on the cross as God, he could reach up and grab the holy hand of a righteous God. As a man who was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, he could reach down and grab the hand of man. And there on the cross of Calvary, through his own blood, he could bring us back together again. That's what he did. I'm telling you, he's the Savior. He's the only. Hey, he's just not one of many saviors. Hey, listen, he's not just a good Savior. He's not even the best Savior. He's the only Savior. There is no other. And if you and I are going to go to heaven, we've got to go through the blood of the cross of the Son of God. I was, uh, uh, one of my routines of my life is every morning go to the hospital and go to Chick-fil-A on my way back to church. That's my life. If you follow me around, you'll find out almost every morning in my life I'm either at Forsyth Hospital, normally Forsyth, not too often Baptist, but our folks go to Forsyth. So I go to Forsyth Hospital, visit the people that are there. On my way back to church, I stop off at Chick-fil-A. That's my life. That's the routine of my life. And uh, so uh, the other morning, it was a Saturday morning, I'd been to the hospital, and I visited, and so I was on my way back to church for the bus meeting. And so I went through the drive-thru, and the guy who runs the Chick-fil-A that I go to is over on Knollwood. His name is Joe. And he said, Joe, uh, he said, Brother Tim. And he said, have you ever read about something called laminins? I said, lamina what? He said, laminins. He said, you ought to read about that sometime. I said, I will. Now, let me spell it for you. L-A-M-I-N-I-N-S. Let me tell you what laminin, laminins are, if I can say it. Let me tell you what they are. Our bodies are made up of cells. So what you're looking at this morning, you say, I'm looking at a six foot nine. Shut up. So what you're looking at this morning is thousands and millions of cells. That's, that's what our bodies are made out of, our cells. Every five years, these cells replace themselves. We get a brand new set of cells every five years. But we're, we're all we are is just a bunch of cells. And, and left to themselves, these cells would just fall apart, were it not for laminins. Laminins are molecules that literally hold the cells together. I mean, if I didn't have laminins in my body right now, literally, I would just right here before you, I'd just, I'd just melt. I'd just fall all to pieces right here. I'd just be millions of cells scattered around. But because of these laminins, all things in my body are held together. Now I want to show you a picture of what a laminin looks like. 
a cross. God wrote into the fabric and fiber of our very, our very beings the story of the cross. Because were it not for the cross, we couldn't be together. Were it not for the cross, we couldn't meet together. And were it not for the cross, we couldn't live together in God's presence forever and forever and ever. It's all because of the cross. Now let me tell you something. I know at Christmas time we sing Christmas songs. So we're probably, I think I heard Miss Lisa a while ago playing Joy to the World. The Lord has come. Let earth receive. We're going to probably start singing Joy to the World, Silent Night. Uh, 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 what's another song? Heart the Herald Angels. We're going to sing all those Christmas songs coming. In. But can I tell you something? If they're Christmas songs, and they are, did you know something? The old rugged cross is just as much a Christmas song as Silent Night is. What about this? Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. Christmas song. Because the Christmas, the, the story of Christmas is not just the story of a cradle. It is the story of the cross. And it is only by the cross, the death of the Son of God, and the blood that was shed on Calvary, it was only by that that you and I, who were aliens, could be reconciled back to God. You can't join the Baptist church and be reconciled to God. You can't turn over a new leaf and be reconciled. You've got to come through the babe of Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus, and his finished work on Calvary. You've got to come through him to God to be reconciled. Only way to get there. I was reading this week, and when I call this lady's name, probably maybe some of our older folks will remember this lady. Not many of our young people. Her name was Rosemary Kennedy. Now let me tell you who Rosemary Kennedy was. Maybe some of you older folks already know. But she was married to a man named Joseph Kennedy. Say, well, preacher, thank you for telling us that. Wonderful. Now we know who she was married. But no, no, listen. The Kennedys are probably one of the most famous families in America. John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, that Kennedy clan. Camelot. You, some of y'all remember those early 60s? We just celebrated his assassination. Uh, not celebrated it, but we commemorated it. <laughs> Boy, aren't you glad he got... No, no, we didn't celebrate it, but we commemorated his whatever it was. I don't know, maybe 55th year, maybe, or something like that, of the Kennedy assassination. Rosemary Kennedy was a lady who was familiar with tragedy. Her first son that she had was killed in, in World War. Two of her sons, John F. and Bobby, were assassinated. She had tremendous heartache elsewhere in her family. Miss Kennedy, Rosemary Kennedy, died at the age of 105 years old. When, uh, before she died, she was invited to attend this meal, $100 a plate, a meal, uh, to raise money for mentally handicapped children because they had a mentally handicapped child. She was invited to, to this, this, this important gathering, and when they sat her at the table, they sat her right beside of a Baptist preacher. Well, when Rosemary Kennedy found out that she was sitting beside of a Baptist preacher, she said, Pastor, it may surprise you to know that I am a born-again Christian. He said, Really? How did that happen? She said, Well, you know that my life has been filled with great tragedy. She said, When me and my husband Joseph were married, it was the social event of that part of the country. 
I mean, it was who's who. I mean, it was wonderful. And for the first several years of our marriage, our marriage was wonderful. We had a son. But then our second child was a little mentally handicapped child, little handicapped girl. And she said, when she was born, my husband blamed me for her being born that way. He became very bitter, very resentful, very angry toward me because he thought I caused her to be born that way. I, in turn, she said, became very bitter toward him. She said, I turned to pills and I turned to alcohol and my life became pills and alcohol. She said, one day, she said, I was... Uh, uh, my little servant girl was there helping me and assisting me. And she said, she did something that made me angry. And she said, I looked at my little servant girl and I said, you make me so unhappy. And she said, my little maid looked back at me and said, Mrs. Kennedy, the reason you're so unhappy and will never be happy is because you've never made your heart a manger for Jesus to be born into. Rosemary Kennedy said, I fired her on the spot, told her never come back again. But she said at 2.45 that morning, those words were ringing in my ear. You'll never be happy till you make your heart a manger for Jesus to be born. Rosemary Kennedy told that pastor, I got out of my bed on my knees and she said for the first time in my life, I said, God, I want to make my heart a manger for your son to be born into. And she said, I got born again that night. Now that clears up something. I guess a Democrat can be saved. <laughs> and a Republican. But can I ask you something? Have you ever made your heart a manger for Jesus to be born into? You see, it's not enough that he came into the world and died it's not enough that he was born. It's not enough that he lived a perfect life. It's not enough he went to Calvary. It's not enough he rose again from the grave. None of that means nothing to you until you, first of all, make your heart a manger for Jesus to be born into. And you'll never know what Christmas is really all about until you invite the who of Christmas into the manger of your heart. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray that...